you have your Bibles, please open to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Father, what a privilege we have to gather as a church to sing Your praises, to sing the praises of our Savior who has done so much for us. God, You came and You pursued us in our sin. You called us out of darkness into Your marvelous light. You set our feet upon a rock. You put new life in us, new desires in us. God, You in kindness led us to repentance that we might forsake our sin and pursue a path of forsaking sin for the rest of our life as we in faith trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins, for adoption as Your children, for full reconciliation with You, and for the hope of eternal life which we know you will bring to pass. We taste it now through faith. We have eternal life now in Christ, but God, we long for the day when we will see you and see our Savior face to face. God, language fails to fully capture how wonderful that experience will be. But Lord, that is what our hearts long for. And that is what our Savior has purchased for us in His death, in His resurrection from the dead. God, what a privilege we have to gather to celebrate Jesus Christ. And to celebrate You, God, that we can know You, that we can call out to You. You, as we are going to see, who are a holy God. The privilege we have through Christ to call You our Heavenly Father is unspeakably great. And so we pray for your blessing on these few moments together as we study your word. God, be with us. May your spirit be at work among us to illuminate us and our hearts to the truth. Lord, as we consider uh, this, this particular text, I pray that we would feel in our own souls the weightiness of your holiness, but also the joy of a provision that makes a way for us to come near to you. Because apart from that provision, we would die in our sins in your presence. And so, Lord, work as only you can. Lord, encourage the faint-hearted. Give life to the dead. Call back the wanderer. And may we all stand in awe of you. And we ask this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Isaiah chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. 
And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. One of the things that is always of great profit and benefit for the people of God is to be renewed in our vision of who God is. We need this. We need such a renewal, such a reminder. We are prone to forget how great God is, how powerful God is, how sovereign God is. We look at the world around us and we see a world gone mad. And we need to stay sane in such a world. And the only way we can stay sane, spiritually speaking, in a world gone mad is by having a right vision of our God. And so we find ourselves in a similar place to Isaiah because Isaiah starts out by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. The first 42 of those, he was a, a king of great power, a king after God's own heart. He was a godly king. He was a zealous king for the truth. And then in a moment of pride, he tried to enter into the temple and God rebuked him. God punished him, afflicted him with leprosy. The last 10 years of his life, he spent in exile. His son Jotham was kind of like a vice co-regent with him. But nonetheless, Uzziah still has overall a good legacy. And 52 years of one ruler tends to build stability. You get used to having him there. And so Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah finally died, he is presented with a human king who is in, in the throes of, of, of death, who is in the throes of of, of earthly failings and earthly weaknesses. He's a leper. He can't even go amongst God's people. He's a failing, fading king. And this king that they had found such security in is about to pass. And so when people, kings, authorities, structures that give us strength and security and 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 boundaries for life when those are taken away we need the same vision that Isaiah had a vision of God sitting on his throne in absolute unchallengeable glory power and authority Isaiah needed to remember that the true king does not grow weak the true king does not fade over time the true king will forever be seated on his throne and no one will ever replace him. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It is not the name of God, Yahweh. It is a title, Adonai. It is referring to the sovereign one or even the sovereign king. And so when the human king is in the, in the midst of fading away, God gives Isaiah this vision of himself, of, of God on his throne, sitting upon it, meaning he's firmly established in his reign, in his authority. And sitting on his throne, Isaiah says God was high and lifted up, lofty and exalted, we could say. And this is true of no one but God. The train of his robe filled the temple 
Again, as those who live in the United States of America, we're not used to kings and queens. We're not used to royalty. We're not used to, to, to individuals carrying such authority and, and having such a presence that to even come before them, you can only do so by their permission. And even when you enter in, you, know, you can only get so close. Uh, and when you get close, you have to bow down. And you don't bow down until, until they tell you to rise up. And so significant and, and, and important is a king or queen that only certain people can actually be friends and get close to them. Everybody else, they keep at a distance. And we think of a king and a queen. We think of a king in, in his glory and in, in his robes that are of, of the most expensive material and fabrics, purples and blues and crimson with a gold crown on his head. He's sitting on his throne, reigning, speaking, and what he says is what goes. You don't challenge it. And this is the king that Isaiah sees, the true king in heaven. And, and again, this is one of those things that may or may not mean anything to us here, but a king, and, and had, he had his robes, and those robes would flow behind him as he walked. The longer the robe, the train of his robe, the greater the glory of the king. And the train of God's robe fills the temple. And so what Isaiah saw, if you want uh, your first point here, we call it Isaiah's vision of God. Make sure I give you that. Isaiah's vision of God and what he saw when he saw God, he saw sovereignty. He saw royalty. He saw holiness. And he saw glory. That's what he saw. And then we consider what he actually heard. Look at verses 3 and 4. We'll talk about these seraphim in a minute. But they called to one another and they said, What? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just consider that word holy. Holy, holy, holy. As Mark read, Revelation 4 is the only other place where God is ever referred to in this threefold repetition of the word holy. And it is significant in how God has given us the Bible that no other attribute of God is ever repeated in that way. Yes, it's true. God is love. We are grateful that God is love. It's the essence of who He is, divine Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfect love within the Trinity that they share with us when we become believers. God is love. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is righteous. God is just. God is wrath. God is all these things. But only the holiness of God is ever given this threefold repetition. In the Hebrew, it's, it's, a, it's a, a device for emphasis to draw our attention to the importance of something. If it's given this threefold repetition, it is signifying nothing is higher or more significant or weighty or important than this thing. And so for of all the attributes of God that, that the Bible could present to us, that, that the only one that we hear with this threefold repetition being that attribute of holiness, we need to pause and say, okay, why does this matter so much? Holiness is a concept that has fallen on hard times because we think of people who try to be holy uh, we think legalism sometimes. We think, oh, they think they're better than everybody. But holiness is actually a good thing in the Bible. It's a really good thing. It's a really good term. It's a really good attribute for us to try to take on. And it's even more amazing when we consider it in light of who God is. So what is holiness? At root, it refers to two basic things. The transcendent majesty of God and the perfect moral purity of God. We talk about transcendent majesty. We go back to that concept of royalty, but transcendent means it goes across, it's above, it's beyond, it's superior to God in his majesty as God and his royal majesty as God is like no other. He is over all. He is beyond all. He is not like us. 
We think of perfect moral purity. We think uh, in, in terms of the fact that God has no sin. God has no stains, no imperfections, no blemishes, no blots. Nothing to make Him unclean or imperfect. He's perfect in every way. And both of those, purity and majesty, comprise the holiness of our God. And that's why the seraphim call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There is no one like Him. There's no one like our God. He is in a class by Himself. But not only do they say that He is holy, 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 they then finish their speech by saying the whole earth is full of His glory. Now there is a connection, I think, between the holiness of God and the glory of God. The holiness of God is who God is in Himself, the fullness of who He is, and when that goes public, that's glory. So the glory of God is the holiness of God gone public. That's why, look, look at what these angels say. They're saying who God is, but when they, they talk about how who God is is displayed, the word glory is used. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so when we think the glory of God, think the holiness of God gone public. So that's what Isaiah heard. Let's consider these beings who said these things, these seraphim. Verse 2, it says, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now the word for seraphim literally means flames or fiery one. These beings, if we were to see them like any other angel, we'd probably fall down in terror. Um, I mean, we know it. We, I ask the question in class all the time. Uh, you know, you can get, kind of get a snicker or a chuckle out of it. What, what, what's the first words that almost always come out of an angel's mouth whenever they appear in the Bible? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Why? Because angels are glorious, powerful, amazing beings to behold. These seraphim are no different. They have six wings. But considering whose presence they're in, let's consider how they're using their six wings as they proclaim the holiness and the glory of God. They've got six wings. First it says, with two he covered his face. And then with two he covered his feet. Why would these, these beings aren't sinful. They're sinless. They don't have any sin in them. They dwell in the presence of God, beholding the holiness and glory of God, proclaiming the praises of God. Why would they cover their face? Why would they cover their feet? Because they realize something. They realize something. They are not worthy to look upon God. They are not worthy to stand in the presence of God. That's why the, with the other two, they're flying. These glorious beings who would fill us with terror, they know God is too worthy to be looked upon. He is too worthy to even stand in His presence. Think about Moses at the burning bush. When he draws near and the angel of the Lord says, Moses, take off your sandals. The ground on which you are standing is holy ground. What did Moses do? Not only did he take his sandals off, he hid his face. Why? He was afraid to look at God. And so these glorious beings, these fiery ones, as amazing as they are, they are nothing in comparison to the God they proclaim. And so that's Isaiah's vision of God, this sovereign king seated on his throne in absolute authority, power, holiness, glory, grandeur, majesty. Now, in light of that, let's see Isaiah's brokenness before God. He has his vision of God. Now we see Isaiah's brokenness before God. Look again at verse 5. Isaiah receives this vision and he said, What? Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As we consider his brokenness before God, we first need to look at his pronouncement. What did he proclaim? 
He said, woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is a term of judgment. Woe is a term of judgment. And Isaiah, as a prophet of God, is divinely called by God to pronounce woe on other peoples, on his own people and on nations and kings. Just look back one chapter to chapter 5. Look at verse 8. There's a series, I think it's least six woes. Look at this, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. Look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Look at verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I'm not going to linger there, but that's a word for our culture if ever there was one. They're inverting everything and saying we should celebrate the things that God hates and hates, hate the things that God loves. And Isaiah says, woe, judgment upon you if that is what you do. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. And the reason why this matters is because Isaiah, as God's prophet, is pronouncing God's judgment on these people for their sin. But as Isaiah relates his own calling to the prophetic ministry, he's reminding us of something here in his own experience, that in the presence of a holy God, we don't look at the sin of other people and say, woe to them. We can't. We can only see our own sin. And we realize of all people anywhere, we are the ones who deserve judgment. Isaiah says, judgment on me. Why does he say this? What's his reason for this pronouncement? He says quite simply, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of unclean lips. Unclean people are intentionally exiled from the presence of God, and they cannot draw near. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to reference this, Leviticus 13, just one example, 45 and 46, about the leprous person, listen to this, who is unclean. It says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. It's horrific to think about such an existence. Verse 46, He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. And listen to this. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 30. Kind of summing up all the uncleanness that Israel is to avoid. He says to his people through Moses, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean. Listen to this language. So that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And interestingly enough, you go to chapter 19. What does he talk about? But his own holiness. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Uncleanness cannot dwell in the presence of God. God desires our holiness so that we can dwell with Him. So we've heard His pronouncement, woe is me. We've seen His reason. He's a man of unclean lips. Now let's consider Isaiah's experience 
let's consider his experience of the holiness of God. This is, I am convinced, one of the most important experiences that we can have in the Christian life is when we get on board with God and His holiness. What does Isaiah say? Verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am lost. Other translations might say ruined or undone. It's even legitimate to say cut off. Why? He's unclean. But he doesn't just have a, a, a mental, intellectual grasp of his uncleanness. He feels it. He feels it in the depths of his soul. This word lost here, undone, ruined, it, 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 it communicates feeling like you're being torn apart at the seams, like the very fabric of what holds you together is being loosened and you're about to be scattered. Why is that? Why? Because sinful man cannot abide or dwell in the presence of a holy God. Sinful man cannot abide or dwell in the presence of a holy God. Remember again, Moses at the burning bush. That's just a, a small glimpse of the glory of God. And Moses was afraid to look. But think about this. Two other instances, at least in the Old Testament, there's many more we could speak of. Think of when the tabernacle in the wilderness was completed and the glory of God filled that tabernacle. What happened? The priests had to get out. They had to leave. They couldn't dwell where God's presence was. Why? Even though they were sanctified, set apart to do the priestly ministry, in their humanity, they could not abide the presence of a holy God. Even more so when Solomon completed the temple. The glory of God comes and fills that temple and it says priests could not stay in there to minister. When sinful humanity comes into the presence of holy God, we fall on our face. We realize we can't abide there. And I think it needs to be said that we must regularly behold God in His holiness if we are to be truly humble toward God and humble towards others. Because we know Isaiah's got a ministry God's going to give him. We know that. But if we are to fulfill any ministry of speaking any, any truth from God to other people, we have to regularly behold God in His holiness. It is the only way we can remain humble. It is the only way that we will seek to glorify God alone. Isaiah says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I just want to ask the question, when was the last time you encountered God in this way? Have you ever encountered God like this? God, by the Spirit, through the Word, not in a visual way, not a physical sense way, but in, in a spiritual way that is just as real, can, can as, as the Scripture says, open the eyes of our hearts so that the reality of who He is is pressed upon us and, and, and we feel it, we know it, we experience it, and it undoes us. Have you ever encountered God like this? If you have, you know what Isaiah speaks of. If not, I pray that you might, because that is the path to salvation. It is the path to new life. And so we see Isaiah's brokenness before God, but now let's switch and see God's grace to Isaiah. See, this is where it gets, it's all good, but this is where we start to celebrate because at this point we might say, how, what, what, what's the point? What's my hope? What, how can I even ever come near to God? If this is who He is and this is who I am, what's my hope? Well, we see that hope in God's grace to Isaiah. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Notice that it is God who pursues Isaiah in his sin. God pursues Isaiah in his sin. Why? Sinful man, a sinful human being is not going to stand up in the presence of God and say, all right, God, I'm coming for you. Why? Because if we get our sin, we're face down. If we understand our sin, we're broken, we're undone, we're ruined. But God comes. God pursues us in our sin. And then, not only did He pursue Isaiah in his sin, He cleanses Isaiah from his sin. He cleanses him from his sin. He says, Behold, this angel, the seraphim, takes with tongs a burning coal from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's mouth with it. Because remember, Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so he goes directly to the source of Isaiah's uncleanness and he cleanses it. What does he say has happened? He says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is not subjective guilt like what we have when we know we've done something wrong and we feel guilty about it. This is objective legal guilt. Isaiah is guilty in the presence of God. And with this act of the seraphim applying the burning coal to his mouth, he's saying your guilt, your legal guilt is now gone. And your sin atone for. God makes the unclean prophet clean. And a central truth here that we need to grasp, spiritual cleansing, which Isaiah needed and we all need, the removal of our guilt, the atonement for our sin only comes by means of God's appointed sacrifice. That something, as I studied this over the years, something that when, it, when this stood out to me, when I finally saw it, it brought a lot more into to, to a sharper focus. It's not just that this coal was applied, okay, a burning coal, what is that? Where did the coal come from? It came from the altar. And what is the altar but the place of sacrifice? It's where God provides the substitute so that his sinful people have their sins transferred to the substitute so that the substitute bears their sins and not them. All Old Testament sacrifices point us to the true and ultimate sacrifice, Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He is the propitiation who forever turns aside God's wrath. His blood and His death alone makes atonement for our sin. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And not one person can come back to God, can dwell in the presence of God apart from Jesus. And so God provides for us he has provided the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate cleansing. Have you ever turned from your sin to Jesus? Not, not in an external sense, because that's what you're supposed to do if you're in church, but in a real sense where you feel your sin. Maybe you didn't have quite the experience Isaiah did, but you know that you are a sinner in the, in the sight of God and that you don't deserve to be in his presence, but that you hear the, the, the hope and the offer of hope in the gospel that in Jesus there is cleansing, in Jesus there is atonement, in Jesus there is, there is removal of guilt. Have you embraced him truly from the heart? Are you trusting in him alone? And Christian, remember, this is a sacrifice that is ever sufficient for you. You don't just go to Jesus when you get saved, when you first become a Christian and then push the cross away and push the gospel away because we move on to better things. There is nothing better than the gospel. There is nothing better than Jesus on the cross for us, dying in our place, bearing our sin, rising from the dead, ascending to the Father to pray for us. There's nothing better than that. We never move on from that. We live in it. We live by it. We live out of it. Next, we see God's commission for Isaiah. 
Look at verses 8 and 9. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, and we'll pick up there in a second. Isaiah was to go on a mission on God's behalf and in God's authority. And notice the change now that has taken place in Isaiah from verse 5 to verse 8. Verse 5, he is broken in his sin. He is undone in the presence of God. Verse 8, he's been cleansed, his guilt removed, his sin atoned for. And now he has boldness to talk to God. I mean, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. This prophet who just said, I deserve to die and be judged in the presence of God, is now talking back to God. Not in a a sinful way, but he's addressing him. He's talking to God. And such is the privilege of all of us who know Jesus. Let us draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and receive grace to help in a time of need. God wants us to come near. God wants us to talk to him. That's what prayer is. And so Isaiah, a completely changed individual, is now volunteering to go on mission for God. But we need to say this, that it is only those who have been both broken by God and restored by God that God will use for His purposes in the world. We have to first be broken and then restored in order for God to send us out. Because if we're not, we don't have any experience with what we're talking about. It's a foreign concept It's just a product we're selling. But when our own souls have been broken down into the basest elements and then rebuilt back up in Christ, then we know of what we speak. We know of this God and this Savior that we're talking about to others. Some Christians are called to pastor, but every Christian is Christ's ambassador. And so this is not something we can say, well, only if you're called to like full-time teaching ministry does this apply to you. This applies to every single one of us. Because as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, you are by definition a witness for Christ. And so we go with boldness and confidence, and yet we go simultaneously with fear and trembling. We go with a deep humility before God and with a profound sobriety toward the world, toward men and women. Isaiah knows he's not just preaching to nothing. He's going to be preaching to people. And so let's consider, lastly, God's message through Isaiah. We've seen His grace to Isaiah, amazingly transforming Isaiah. Now let's consider this last point, God's message through Isaiah. Let's read again in verse 9. He says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. We need to consider the reality of this message. Uh, And the reason why it matters is because most of the time when Isaiah 6 is preached on, they don't talk about the last part. It's all about, yeah, you got your call to missions. You know, God sent you out. You're going to go speak for God. But we never actually consider what God told Isaiah to say. It's not an exciting, encouraging message, at least especially in terms of the response that people are going to have. This message will affect a dual result and response. And the majority of the people who hear what Isaiah has to say, guess what? They're going to be hardened in their sin. They're not going to repent. They're not going to turn. They're not going to come back to God. In fact, the message is going to harden them such that they get even more dug in into their sin. And so we have to consider what this means for us. Because yes, the gospel is good news. It is the best news that could ever be told to a sinful world that is under God's judgment. The gospel saves. The gospel, God through the gospel gives new life. But that very same message that gives new life 
also hardens. And we need to remember this because we live in a culture that says if we can just say it right all the time, everybody will accept it. Nobody will be offended. Nobody will get upset. And that is just a lie. The message that God gives us will bring hardening for many and it will bring brokenness for others. The same message, the same truth will break others down so that they seek newness and new life in Jesus. And at the same time, it will harden other people and they will stiffen their necks and their backs against God. Listen to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, the word of the, for the word of the cross is folly to those who were perishing. Listen to the contrast here. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So there's, that, there's the response. That's the hardening to so many people. They're not going to see it. They're not going to get it. They're not going to embrace it. Verse 24, but to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says it even clearer. Verse 14 through 16 says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we Christians are the aroma of Christ to God among those who, two categories of people, those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Look at the effect of the gospel. To one, a fragrance from death to death. That means they don't repent, they don't believe, they don't get saved. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Meaning some will. And he asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? It's not us. It's God alone. It is God alone. And so the message that we preach, the message Isaiah preached, the message we are called to preach will affect a dual response, hardening for many and brokenness and salvation for others. But we also need to remember that as sobering as that is, it is also a message that is filled with hope for everyone who believes. It is filled with hope, overflowing with hope. Look again in Isaiah verse 13. Look at this last verse. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God does not ultimately forsake his people. They will not be forever cast off. They will not be destroyed. There is hope, the holy seed, the holy people. And we know that out of that holy people comes a holy servant who will bear their sins and bring them back to God. It is a message filled with hope for all who believe. Turn in your Bibles to the end of Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah is consistent in his message. And listen to this. This is... The hope that we speak of. Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Notice what he says. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If you want to draw the gaze of God, the attention of God to your life, be humble, be contrite, broken in your spirit. And tremble at his word. 
couple of summary statements based on what we've seen. Number one, God is sovereign and His sovereignty is absolutely secure. God is sovereign. He's free to do everything that pleases Him. And that freedom is absolutely secure. Number two, God is holy and His glory fills the earth. Number three, angels are mighty and God is infinitely mightier than they Number four, man is unclean and is utterly broken in the presence of God. Number five, man is helpless and is absolutely dependent on God to be gracious. Number six, man is condemned and only has hope in God's provision for forgiveness. Number seven, God's message is effectual to the conversion of some and the hardening of the rest. And so as we close, again, do you know this holy God? Have you ever encountered Him before? It is my prayer that even through the the preaching of this message, maybe God has taken that veil away for you, if that is you, and you are sensing in your own soul His holiness, His glory, and your own sinfulness. Hear the hope laid out to you that there is a way of cleansing, of atonement, of forgiveness, of removal of guilt, of new life, and His name is Jesus. He will receive you. Call out to Him in your heart today. Christian, be reminded your God is securely seated on His throne. We live in a world gone mad, but God reigns. Let's remember that. Let's preach that to ourselves, to our family, to our friends, to one another here at church. God reigns. And Jesus is still a perfect, sufficient Savior. As we struggle through this life, He is sufficient for us. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this amazing glimpse at who you are. Lord, help us to feel in our own souls our own sin and unworthiness in light of your absolute worthiness and holiness and glory. God, we praise you for providing a Savior, a sacrifice that cleanses us that removes our guilt, that atones for our sin. We thank You for Jesus on the cross. Lord, may we never grow bored with Him, never grow dull to Him, never be forgetful of Him when we consider who You are. When we consider that if we come into Your presence on our own without Jesus, we're done. But in Him, with Him, we are loved and accepted and treasured, and cherished, and we can call out to You, and You hear us. Lord, help us to reconsider our own lives in light of the fact that we have been redeemed, we have been saved, we have been cleansed. Lord, may we be as eager as Isaiah to say, here I am, send me. And may we have confidence that You will work through Your message. God, we do not determine a person's response. You work through the message to change hearts and change lives. You call us to share it faithfully. Help us do that. God, we bless Your great name, Your holy name. And Lord, we stand in awe of You. There is no one like You. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk humbly with You. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a church, uh, we have the privilege um, every second Sunday to celebrate and remember uh, the work of our Savior for us through communion, uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, And so we're going to partake of that together today as a church here in just a moment. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, But in the following instructions... Actually, I'm not going to read all that. I'm going to go a little bit further down. Um, We'll start verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it seems just very fitting uh, in light of who God is and his holiness and our sinfulness that we take time to celebrate and remember the, the very means by which we can draw near to God, which is the body and blood of Jesus. As we partake of this, we need to know that there's nothing magic about these. You don't become a Christian because you partake this. Um, these elements are symbolic. These elements point us to Jesus, the bread and the cup, to his body and his blood broken and his blood spilt for us. There is a beauty in what we are about to do as a church family together. This is something we do together, uh, something we celebrate together as a community. And it needs to be said, this is only for believers. Only for believers. If you're not a believer, then I do ask you, don't partake of this today. What you need most is not to partake of the symbol. You need to come by faith and partake of the reality. Who is Jesus? You need to trust in him. And if, if that is you, then it is okay to not take this. It is okay. Like that's the best thing for you, actually. Turn to Jesus if you are not a Christian at this point, and and then you know, come talk to us and we'll we'll talk with you and pray with you and have you baptized, and then you partake. But believers, if you are in any way in unrepentant sin and you are just not forsaking it, then I would also exhort you, don't partake. Deal with your sin. Deal with your sin. Confess it to God. Find the forgiveness that's in Jesus um, and then come and partake. But if you are unwilling, then I would encourage you, don't partake today. You need to work on this issue. But for the rest of us, if you, have, if you know as best you can that you are walking as you're supposed to and you know you're forgiven and you know that you are turning away from sin, then come and partake and enjoy and celebrate what our Savior has done. Ian's going to come and play while we partake. As when he does, please just come up. Um, got the lines here. We do have gluten-free if you need that. I'm going to pray one more time, and then we can partake together. God, we thank you so much for the grace that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Um, Lord, what, what a symbol for the work that has been done for us. And as we partake, help us to truly celebrate and remember and proclaim our Lord's death until the day he comes back for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.